Welcome to this week's Parsha Shir, and we're going to be talking about Parsha's Korach. Korach is a, a puzzle. It's a tragic story of a, an argument between two family members, cousins, Moshe and Korach, and the, the story is included in the Torah because there are very important lessons to learn from the story. And the Mepharshim starts with the Midrashim, and the Mepharshim um, add to the Midrashim. Midrashim is, of course, Torah Shabal Peh, and the, and the Mepharshim uh, give context to a lot of the Midrashim, and it's fascinating material. Uh, there's a lot of Musar material in Parshas Korach. We're going to look at my grandfather's Sefer, um, because I think that he has some wonderful insights into familiar territory when it comes to the story of Korach, and I think you'll enjoy it very much. So that's the opening verse, the opening posuk of Parshas Korach. And Rashi says, Ma'osa, what did he do? What is it that Korach did? What is it that defines his challenge to Moshe's leadership? Omad Konas Reish Nun Sanhedrois. He took, and this of course is based on a medrash, he took 250 heads of Sanhedrois, is the way it's expressed in the medrash, but we're talking about senior leaders, people who were considered the leadership of their tribe. Ruban Mishevet Reuven Shechenov. Most of them came from the adjacent area of the encampment to where Korach lived, which was Shevet Reuven. Reuven had their own gripes with Moshe because, of course, Reuven was the tribe that descended from the Bechoyer, uh, the oldest son of Yaakov, and there was resentment at the fact that they had been usurped by Moshe Rabbeinu, Shevet Levi, etc., and therefore they were um, ripe for revolution ripe for rebellion. So Korach uh, went along to Shevet Levi and they conspired together against the, uh, against the leadership of, of Moshe and of Aaron. Vehim Elitzur ben Shadeur, a familiar name, Vechavera Vechuyotzebai. These were the names of those from Shevet Levi, from Shevet Uvein, who joined up with Korach in, in his rebellion against Moshe. Says Rashi, it's quoting the Medrash, that each of them made a talus that was totally fabricated from techeles wool. That means that the, uh, the dye that was used to color the beged, the item of clothing that they were wearing with four corners, was blue. They dyed it with techeles. Both Omdulif Moshe are now wearing these items, these items of clothing. They came and they stood before Moshe. Omrulah and they said to him as follows, Talis shekula shel techeles chayeves betzitzis oi petura. What is it, what's the halacha, when you have a talus that's made entirely of techeles? Do you have to put tzitzis on it or don't you? 
Why would they have asked this question? Because we know that one of the threads of the Titis, and we don't have it today, although there has been treles discoveries over the past decades, uh, beginning, in fact, uh, over a hundred years ago with the Radzina Tcheles, but later on with Rav Herzog's Tcheles, and since then various other ideas as to what the Tcheles was. But essentially, uh, we know that one of the threads of the, t of the Tzitzis that we have on the uh, corners of a four-cornered Beged has to be Tcheles. Maybe it has to be um, one long piece, which uh, then turns into two of the eight strings that hang below the final knot, or maybe it's just one of the, uh, you know, it's only half of the long string, and therefore it's only one that hangs below the knot that is a treles-colored uh, uh, piece of string. But whatever it is, we know that the treles is an essential component of the titsis. It's mentioned in the parsha, which actually is at the end of last week's sedra, at the end of Shalach, we have the parsha of Titsis, we say it every day, we include that parsha in the Shema, and it says that you have to include Pesilta Cheles, a thread of blue, blue wool, that uh, uh, is described in Chazal, etc., as to how it should be done. But what happens, asked Korach and his Eidah, if the entire Beged is fabricated from cloth that is Techeles, do you still have to include Titis of Tcheles in the on the fringes on the corners of this garment. Omar Lohem said Moshe Rabbeinu Chayeves, of course you must the color of the actual beggar itself has no bearing on the tzitzis that have to be uh, that have to be sewed on to the uh, to, uh, the beggar itself. Hischilu lesachikolov. So they began laughing at him and they made fun of him. They dismissed him, they ridiculed Moshe Rabbeinu for having paskin the halacha in the way that he did. Now, if you have a talus that is white or green or yellow, and it's enough if you put one thread of treles in the titis, then the titis are okay. This Talus, which is entirely techeles. So whatever it is that the techeles achieves with one string, but here you're achieving it with a beged totally dyed with a techeles dye. Loitifter es atzma, surely it should make the titis potter. You don't have to put titis on such a beged. So they were dismissing Moshe Rabbeinu's idea that titis require the techeles if the beged, if the garment itself is made of techeles. Asks the Mikdash Alevi, why is it that Korach specifically chose this mitzvah? This specific mitzvah of Titsis. Okay, we have the proximity because at the end of last week's parsha we have the parsha of Titsis, so there is some. Uh, um, the context is there, but nevertheless, we need to understand what the Medrash is trying to teach us. And the Medrash is telling us that Korach was challenging the mitzvah of Titis. Surely there was plenty of mitzvahs that he could have chosen to make fun of. Why would he have particular picked, particularly have picked the mitzvah of Titis as the one that he was going to ridicule before Moses? Uh, in his attempt to undermine Moses' leadership.
The Nira Loiman, perhaps we can suggest the following as an answer. We know that in Parshas Titis it says as follows, You should have these fringes, these um, titis that you have on the corners of this beged of four corners. You should see it as a result of seeing the titis, you will remember, they will remind you of all the mitzvahs of Hashem and you will do them. You won't go after that which your eye sees, that which your heart wants because there's many things, there's many desires that one has in life, but the titsis will redirect you. You will always manage as a result of observing the titsis which you wear to uh, not do the averus that you are attracted to, uh, because human nature attracts you to do the wrong thing. Which means, of course, that the mitzvah, this commandment, this directive of having to include titis in a four-cornered garment, what is it there to do? It is there to remind a person when he sees them or she sees them of all the mitzvahs in the Torah. Which explains why it is that Korach wanted to undermine this specific mitzvah. Why is it that he chose the mitzvah of Titis as the one that he wanted to dismiss? Because his intent was not simply to dismiss one mitzvah, but to undermine the context, which was that this is a mitzvah that's there to remind you of all the mitzvahs. He was looking to be a shona or pirish. He was looking to entirely disconnect himself from all the mitzvahs in the Torah, whatever he knew he wanted to discard. And that's why the mitzvah of Titsis was a platform for the dismissal of every mitzvah in the Torah. He wanted to completely annul and deny and uh, get rid of every aspect of the Torah that had already been delivered. I mean, we know that the 613 mitzvahs were incumbent uh, on every Jew, and he wanted to, to completely uh, disentangle his chevra from these commitments, and that's the idea uh, of choosing Titus as the one to ridicule. And then now we can understand an aspect of the answer that Moshe Rabbeinu gave him. You know that Moshe Rabbeinu responded, it's a, you, should, you should read the actual script, as it were, of Parashat Korach, because you see how cleverly Moshe Rabbeinu dismissed the attacks of Korach, the, um, the ideas that Korach put forward were very simply dismissed by Moshe Rabbeinu's response. And here we see a good example of it. He said as follows to Korach and to his group. With this you should know. Do you know why I'm here? Because God sent me. He put me here to do all of these things. I didn't come up with them from my own heart, as it were. I didn't invent them. It's not something that I came up with. These are ordinances and laws that God gave to me, and God gave to me to give to the Jewish people. Says the Mikdash Alevi, why does it need to say, Why did Moshe feel the need to say to Korach that 
uh, I'm here to make sure that you do all the things that God asked you to do. What's the word kol uh, to include in this particular response? It could quite easily have said, That which we've said now explains that we have a, we have a reason for Moshe to have responded this way because of the Medrash that explained to us what it is that Korach did with his Eidah. Now that Moshe understood, because he'd been challenged with this mitzvah of Titus, that Korach's intent was not simply to challenge Moshe's leadership, but actually to change the direction of the Jewish people and make sure that they didn't have to observe any mitzvahs. Now that he understood what it is that was motivating Korach, for that reason he needs to tell Korach, by the way, it's not just Korach that is the audience here, it's everyone among the Jewish people both then and since then that Moshe Rabbeinu is addressing with his response We know that Moshe Rabbeinu needs to inform us why it is that Korach's wrong and what it is that we need to do to battle Korach. We need to do as kol ha-ma'asim zois as kol Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to tell Korach and everybody else that he was not going to simply concede to Korach's challenge. He wasn't going to allow Korach to tell him that the mitzvahs were irrelevant, that you can be, for example, a good person without observing the mitzvahs. We have been given these mitzvahs and the mitzvahs are 613 and everything that's connected to them. Those mitzvahs are given to us by God as the essence of who we are as a people of faith, as the Jewish nation. And that he tried to use tzitzis as a way of challenging that, kind of an underhanded, subtle way of implying that none of the mitzvahs should count. And Moshe Rabbeinu immediately responded by saying, Ki Hashem shalochani lasois es kol hamaasim. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to convey. Loi bodomi liboy. I didn't come up with them from myself. I didn't come up with these mitzvahs to bother you or to create problems for the Jewish people. Everything that I have instructed has been as a direct result of instruction that I have received from Hashem. These are commandments, these are ordinances, these are directives that I have been, uh, that have been delivered to me by God Himself. There is no sense in trying to undermine them or to try and find fault with them or to try and say that they're not relevant to us. That makes no sense whatsoever. The battle with Korach is the battle almost with every assimilationist that the Jewish people has ever had to encounter. Korach wanted to say, I can be a good Jew without doing the mitzvahs. He used tzitzis as the example, but it, tzitzis was simply there as a foil. He wanted to show that if we don't take mitzvah, uh, the mitzvah of titis seriously. We don't have to take any of the mitzvahs seriously. And therefore the response was, no, Moshe said, I am a representative of God. I am here to tell you that every mitzvah is important and what you're trying to do is simply to undermine who we are as a Jewish people and that can never succeed. Vayikach Koyrach ben Yitzor continues the Mikdash HaLevi. 
Ben Kahas, Ben Levi, Udosim, Abiram, lists all the people who are involved. Vayikach Kerach, the expression, Vayikach Kerach is a strange expression and it is addressed by Rashi. What does it mean that Kerach took? Vayikach means and he took. What did he take? Says Rashi, and by the way, um, it's, uh, it's based, of course, on Chazal. Vayikach Kerach, Lokach Etz Atzmoi, he took himself, Letzad Echod, to, a, to kind of a side place. He separated himself. He removed himself. That's what it means. He wanted to be separate. He wanted, of course, to be special. He wanted to be unique. He wanted to be separated from the people. In order for him to protest uh, on the fact, about the fact that he hadn't been chosen to be the priest. Unculus. And that's exactly how Unculus, the primary translator, the original translator of the Torah, the Targum Unculus, translates the word Vayikach brilliantly. Do you know what he says? Rashi quotes it. Espaleg. Paleg means it's machloikus. He separated himself in order to challenge. Nechlak mish'arho edoi. Separated himself from everybody else in order so that he could establish a difference between himself and everybody else and he could fight with them, challenge them, specifically Moshe who was the leader, but he wanted to be different and he wanted to create a division between himself and everybody else. The Mishnah of Avos Matzino, we know the Mishnah in Avos says, it's in Perik Hay, it's Mishnah Yudzain, it's a famous Mishnah I've written about and spoken about it many, many times. Any machlokas, any argument that is for the sake of heaven, that means it's for the correct purposes, it's because you want to better the world, you want to better yourself as people, not just yourself, but everybody. So you have a machlokas, you have a disagreement, but ultimately the resolution of that disagreement is going to be for the betterment of the people of faith that you are involved with. Ultimately, it will endure. That means not the machlekas will endure, but whatever the outcome is, is going to be an enduring outcome. What about simply arguing because you want to argue, you want to have an argument. You want to create difficulties, you want to create divisions. People who argue because they enjoy controversy. Ein says the Mishnah, such a machlekas cannot possibly endure. That means there is nothing positive that's going to emerge out of such a disagreement. asks the Mishnah, what is it? What is a machlekas that is l'shem shamayim? What type of disagreement, what kind of dispute, debate are we talking about when we refer to it as machlekas l'shem shamayim? Zu machlekas hilal v'shamay. These are the disputes of hilal and shamay. It's interesting. Hilal and shamay only recorded as arguing three and maybe five times in the whole of the Talmud. Uh, the base shamayim, base hilal argued more than 300 times, although we know from the Gemara that Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai would marry each other's daughters and they observed whatever it was in order to maintain peace in the community. When Beis Shammai married the daughters of Beis Hillel, etc., they would observe the practices, the halachic decisions of Beis Hillel, etc. 
So we know that the machlekas between Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai, between Shammai and Hillel, these were not disagreements, these were not debates that were there to undermine the other, to destroy them. Not at all. To the contrary, you know what Hillel and Shammai were doing? They wanted to build up Klal Yisrael. They wanted to build up Torah. They wanted to build up an understanding of Halacha. Therefore, Sofer Lehiskaim, that's why, by the way, these Machlokos are included in the Talmud. We need to know about these disagreements because we can learn a lot from Beishamai, even though we don't decide halacha according to Beishamai, except in 18 cases. More than 300 cases of disagreement, but only in 18 cases do we decide the halacha, decide the halacha according to Beishamai. Because Beishamai and Beishilal both had the same objective. Lahagdil Torah ulaha adira. They wanted to glorify Torah. That was their purpose. That was what they wanted to do. And that is the epitome, it's the perfect example, it's the paradigm of a machlekas l'shem shamayim. They, had, they didn't want to destroy each other, on the contrary, they wanted to build each other up. L'she'ena l'shem shamayim, says the Mishnah. What about a machlekas that is not for the sake of heaven? You know what type of machlekas that is? We have a perfect example from Jewish history. It's from this week's Parsha. Machlekas u machlekas korach This is the machlekas of korach and his group, his supporters. There's a famous question, the Mikdash Halevi quotes it now and gives the well-known answer, and that's what we're going to be talking about over the next few minutes. Because the question, of course, is that if the Machlokas is between Beishamai and Beis Hillel, who is the Machlokas in this week's Parsha between? It's between Korach, not his group, Korach, the Moshe, or Moshe and Korach. That is the machlokas that's not l'shem shemaim. Korach wanted to undermine, to challenge Moshe's leadership, even though God had chosen Moshe to be the leader of the Jewish people. So the Mishnah has said it wrong. The Mishnah has described the machlokas between Korach and Moshe as Korach v'choladosoi. So that is the question that all the Mepharshim ask. And the Mikdash Shalevi, I'm not going to read it, the Mikdash Shalevi quotes an answer that you can find repeated in various different formats in many of the Mepharshim. And that is that when a machlokas is l'shem shamayim, the dispute, the debate is between the different points of view regarding the subject at hand. Beishamai paskins the halacha this way. Beis Hillel paskins the halacha that way. That's a machlokas between two groups of people who wish for the machlokas to be resolved in a positive way. However, when a machlokas is not l'shem shamayim, it has nothing to do with the interlocutor. It's got nothing to do with the pe- person you're fighting or the group that you're fighting or the, or the idea that you're fighting because those who support the opposing view, the one that is not l'shem shamayim, will end up fighting amongst each other. That's inevitable, says the Mishnah, according to all the Mepharshim who explain it, that the Machlokas of Korach was not with Moshe. The Machlokas ultimately, and that proves it wasn't L'shem Shemayim, was between Korach the Choladosei. Why? Because their motives 
their purposes were different. The motives of Reuven were that they wanted to replace Shevet Levi entirely. The motives of Korach were that he wanted to replace Moshe, but he wanted to retain the leadership of the Jewish people, the spiritual leadership within Shevet Levi. Ultimately, let's say, and obviously this is not what happened, but in a sort of in a fantasy world, had Korach won, do you think that him and Shevet Reuven would have stayed on the same page? Obviously not, because they both had tensions among each other. Uh, Korach wanted to remain on top. Reuven wanted to get back its original position as the leader, leadership of the Jewish people, or whatever they felt that they should be, as having been the firstborn of Yaakov Avinu. So you see that the actual Machlokas itself, one point of view, is splintered between different points of view, and ultimately that is where this Machlokas that is not L'Shem Shemaim will end up, as a dispute that would destroy whoever it is that is trying to make their point of view felt and heard and taken uh, consideration of in this particular position, and uh, this particular situation, this narrative, Korach wanted to undermine and usurp and replace Moshe Rabbeinu, but even had he done so, there would have, uh, the fight would have continued even after Moshe Rabbeinu was gone. So that's the answer um, uh, that the Mikdash Shalevi quotes, but I'm now going to give, he gives another two answers to this question as to why the Mishnah describes the Machlokas of of Korach as not being with Moshe, but has having been Korach va'adosoi. Beautiful answers, both of them. The nearly Yashif Zakusha ba'ifen Naisef Ulevair. Let's answer it in a different way, says the Mikdash Alevi. Ki omlam vada misyacheses mishnaseinu lemachloiks lechamachikosoi shal Korach keneged Moshe Rabbein. Obviously, the Mishnah is referring not to the machloikas between Korach and his group and his so-called supporters. The machloikas was obviously between Korach and Moshe. So why doesn't the Mishnah say Korach ve Moshe or Moshe ve Korach? Why does it call it Korach ve Adosai? Nevertheless, there was absolutely no foundation for the Mishnah to have mentioned the name of Moshe Rabbeinu when having cited this machlokas, this argument, this disagreement, as being the example, the exemplar of a machlokas, of a debate, of an argument, of a controversy that is not l'shem shamayim. Why not? Because in every dispute in the world, any time there's an argument, there is always two points of view there are always two people who are arguing. One of them takes a point of view, which is, let's say, that they want to not allow something. And the other one says, no, it should be allowed. And this one has their reasons for having their point of view. And the other one has a reason for having their particular point of view. But there's two distinct positions in the argument. This one says it's potter. No, no problem with it. They're mechaev, and that one says, no, it is, you're liable in this situation. Whatever the dispute may be, you can think of any disagreement you've ever come across. There's always two vehemently held points of view. But now we have to look at a slightly different perspective, and this is reflected in this week's Parsha in Parsha's Korach. In the argument... In the dispute between Korach, as it were, and Moshe Rabbeinu, 
There was only one side to the arguments of the mission, and that's what the point is of the Mikdash Alevi. That's a machlokus that's not the Shem Shemaim. You're making a fight with someone who doesn't even want to fight with you. Has no reason to dispute what you have to say. Because we know that Moshe Rabbeinu, had it been up to him as far as he was concerned, Muchan hoya levater besimcha al hamanhigus letovas kerach. Do you know what? Had God turned round to Moses and said, you know what, you've had your, ta- your time, you've had your chance, you've been the leader of the Jewish people for the past year or two, whatever it is, now give Korach a turn. Do you know what Moshe Rabbeinu would have said? With the greatest of pleasure, no problem, I'm very happy for Korach to be the leader. If you think that that's what he should be, I stand down and let him take over. We know that that wasn't his decision. It was a decision for God to make. But Moshe Rabbeinu, as far as he was concerned, he had no desire to be the leader of the Jewish people. If there was a replacement that God chose, he would be perfectly happy to relinquish his position to give it up. Moshe Rabbeinu, as far as Moshe Rabbeinu was concerned, I don't need anything. I don't want anything. You take it, have it with the greatest of pleasure. You know, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, God said to him, you've got to do this. You have got to be the leader of the Jewish people. Karach doesn't have a claim. I want you to be the leader of the Jewish people, okay? If that's what you want, says Moshe to God, I'll do it. But you should know, if you think that Karach should be my replacement, I'm perfectly happy to give it up. But you know what, when God paskins the halacha, when God steps in and says, this is the way it should be, obviously Moshe didn't object. But as far as he was concerned, it didn't matter. What do we see from this? That in this disagreement, this debate, this controversy, this polemic that was generated, all the fuss, that surrounded this episode of Korach challenging Moshe Rabbeinu, there weren't two sides. There was only one side. Do you know which side that was? It was the side of Korach Va'adosai. He was fighting. Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't fighting back. He was the one who was trying to replace Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu was saying with the greatest of pleasure, if that's what God wants, I'll do it. He was willing to step down. The only one who was generating this dispute, this controversy, was Korach. As far as Rosh Rabbeinu was concerned, he didn't want to have any part of it. No need for it. Don't worry. That's what you want. You've come to me with this request. Adarabba, I'll give it to you. I'm very happy for you to be the leader. Says the Mikdash Alevi, that's why when the Mishnah mentions this dispute, it would make sense to say that this was a dispute between Korach and Moshe, because it wasn't. Do you know when a machlokus is not L'shem Shamayim? When the person who's fighting is fighting somebody who's absolutely not interested in the fight, doesn't want to fight back. That's not a fight that's L'shem Shamayim. That's a fight that's not L'shem Shamayim. The Ein Sofer L'Hizkayim. If such a fight takes place, that it cannot endure, it cannot possibly succeed. 
The Mishnah doesn't mention Moshe's name at all. In, with reference to the argument of Kerach Because Moshe took no part in this Machlaikas. He was simply responding to circumstances that he had been faced with. But he had no interest in. He was not interested in the fight. And had Karach stood down, it would have been fine. Had Moshe been told by God that Karach should be the leader, no problem. The only people who were actively engaged in this dispute was Karach. That's answer number one um, that the Mikdash Shalevi suggests as to why the Mishnah says Karach v'adosai and not Karach v'moshe. V'oid nire loimar. I have another answer, says the Mikdash Alevi. Mahalech shoyne b'viur hadvarim, a totally different way of explaining what was going on here. Ulevar shesede his na'alus ha'inyonim ha'yashoyne michfi shehu mitztar le'eneinu. Let's face the reality. Let's look at the details of the story. And suddenly we will see, we will see it through different eyes. We'll get a totally different perspective. We're suddenly going to un- understand this argument in a completely different way. It's fresh. It's b- and by the way, it's fantastic. You're going to see here why the Mikdash Halevi has such a refreshing approach to the um, understanding of narratives in the Torah. Listen to this beautiful answer. And he's using the Mishnah as his platform, but really what he's doing is giving us a a fantastic hashkofa in our own lives. We have a medrash. The medrash says as follows. It says that Moshe heard that Korach had challenged him. What exactly did he hear? That's the Medrash. The Medrash has this question. It's a Medrash Rabbah. You can look it up. Yud Ches Chof. And the Medrash answers as follows. Omar B'Shmua Bar Nachmeni or Rabbi Yonason. B'Shmua Bar Nachmeni quotes Rabbi Yonason as saying as follows. Melamed Shechoshtuhu Be'eshes Ish. It's hard to believe. It's a stunning Medrash. An astounding Medrash. Do you know what Moshe Rabbeinu heard? He heard that there were rumors that were being spread by Koyrach V'Adosai that he was an adulterer, that he was somehow um, had misbehaved in terms of his relationships with women. He was married, of course, but he had misbehaved. He'd done something very wrong. And this was the story, the rumor, that Korach Vadosa was spreading about Moshe Rabbeinu. It's shocking. Continues the Medrash. Omar Rab Shmuel Bar Yitzchok Omar Rav. Rab Shmuel Bar Yitzchok says, he quotes Rav. Melamed shekol echad kino le'ishtoi me'moshe. We see from here that everybody was jealous of Moshe's wife. Somehow this element of his very personal, very private life became a topic of public discussion during the course of the Machlokas between Moshe Rabbeinu and Korach. Shocking. Korach was spreading rumors. We can see from here that Korach, there was no borders, there was no limits to what Korach was willing to say in his argument to undermine Moshe's leadership. He was willing to go as far. It's an unbelievable red line to cross. It's a heinous crime 
to, to accuse such a great leader of. And we know how badly people can get damaged from a false accusation of this nature. Korach was willing to lie in his attempt to undermine Moshe Rabbeinu. That's the Medrash. What can we learn from here? And what is the Mishnah trying to teach us? Everybody agreed that the way to undermine, to cancel Moses, that they needed to come up with a story that they all agreed on that was true. And of course, they're going to be taken seriously. They're going to be tweeting it and putting it on their um, Instagram uh, as far as, as much as they could. They were going to be spreading this rumor. They were going to be ensuring that everybody would be talking about the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu was guilty of adultery, guilty of being disloyal and unfaithful to his wife with another woman. The whole 250, these are leaders, these are senior people. Can you imagine that you can get such people, such great people, to lie en masse? That's what they were willing to do. Show me Roshi Sanhedrois Shabi Yisrael. Everybody respected them. Everybody thought that they were wonderful. But in order so that they could spread this rumor, that they could, they could establish a narrative that Moshe Rabbeinu was an adulterer, was an immoral individual. They all agreed that this was the story that they would spread. And that's why it says by Yishma Moshe, Moshe had heard that that's what they were saying about him. Doako. Says the Mikdash Alevi, an unbelievable thing. Korach was a Talmud Chochum. He'd learned from Moshe Rabbeinu. And he knew that there was a Torah Shabal pair. We have it in a Gemara in Sanhedrin, Daf Yudzayin, Omadalaf. The Gemara there says, and obviously this is established halachic principle, Sanhedrin, Shero'u Kulon Lechoiva. If you have a Sanhedrin, let's say you have a Sanhedrin that has to rule on capital punishment about a murderer. You need a Sanhedrin of 23 people. And every single one of the 23 Dayonim decides, I guess it's a secret ballot, every single one of them decides that the party that's being accused of murder is guilty of the charge, is guilty as charged, is guilty of the crime, is guilty of the sin. What happens? Patron, I say, he won't get capital punishment. If there's unanimity, if it's a unanimous decision of the court of 23, in this case, judges who are jurors, they are the ones to make the decision. 23 um, to 0, unfortunately, or fortunately, the, uh, the accused will not be killed, won't, won't be subject to capital punishment, won't be executed. The only way that somebody can be judged and considered guilty is if a majority rule 
and that there's a minority who rules differently. You can't have not just the majority, but a unanimous decision. And therefore, Korach was nervous because he knew that they'd reached a decision. They obviously had a council of war. They'd had a meeting. They'd all decided that they're going to spread this rumor that Moshe Rabbeinu is an adulterer. He's an immoral individual who cannot possibly be the leader of the Jewish people. So he makes a decision that they're going to spread this rumor, but he realizes that if every single one of them is in agreement about this story, about this lie, about this cancel situation, what's going to happen? That everyone's going to say, hmm, it doesn't make much sense because everybody agrees they must have pre-planned it. So what did he do? He knows that if that's the, the, what's going to happen, people are going to say, doesn't make sense. Everybody agrees, so it can't be true because he knows that that's the halacha. Therefore, what did he do? He came up with a fantastic tactic. He said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to disagree with everybody. Everyone's going to say Moshe Rabbeinu is an adulterer, and I'm going to say, no, he's not an adulterer. He's a fine, upstanding individual. I, I know, I want to replace him as the leader, but that's not because I want to impugn his character. I think he's a wonderful person. Never did Navera, certainly has never been engaged in immoral activities. Korach was willing to go against his own story in order to establish it as truth because he knew there needed to be a minority in order for it to stick. The Zika is Moshe Rabbeinu, and therefore he said Moshe Rabbeinu is innocent of the charges. There's no basis for what he's being accused of. But then everybody's going to believe it. Why? Because he has a defender even among those who accuse him. That being the case, he must be guilty as charged because of what we say in Sanhedrin, We can say from this, Now we can understand what the Mishnah is talking about. The Mishnah says there is an argument, the type of argument that's L'Shem Shemaim. Do you know what that argument is? It's an argument between a Beishamai, 100% believe what they're saying. And a Beishilel, 100% believe what they're saying. They are utterly committed to their cause to the extent that there's, there's, no, there's no dispute within that group in order to do some tactical maneuver. They are completely committed to their point of view. They've decided this is the way we think. Beishilel think what they think. Beishamai think what they think. That's a machlekes l'shem shamaim. We're willing to stand by our convictions. But when it comes to Korach v'adosai, ein medubakana machlokusai shokorach kenegem moishrabeinu. The Mishnah wants to make a point about a machlokus that's not l'shem shamaim. It's a tactical machlokus that has nothing to do with reality and nothing to do with truth and nothing to do with conviction, nothing to do with beliefs. It's to do with scoring tactical points in order to achieve an objective. Koirach was willing to say something different than his Eidah 
in order to score the tactical point to undermine Moshe Rabbeinu's status as a man of unbelievable moral standing. This was about the din. This was about what Korach wanted to establish as far as Moshe Rabbeinu's character was concerned by suggesting that he was immoral, but doing so in such a way that people would say, oh, you see, even among themselves, they're not sure. Therefore, it must be true because Korach was willing to take the stand, as it were, in defense of Moshe so that his condemnation, his and his group's condemnation of Moshe would be taken seriously. The whole purpose of the Machlokas was simply to undermine Moshe Rabbeinu's moral standing and therefore his quality of leadership. Tactical machlekas, to make a decision among yourselves that we're going to do it in a particular way so that we can achieve a certain result, that's not a machlekas l'shem shamayim. There is nothing more nefarious than that. What is it that we can learn from this? Do you know something? Nagius can completely destroy a person's moral compass. Uh, you know, you can think as somebody who's Nagia that you're doing something for the best possible motives. You're going to lie in court because you know that person's guilty. You're going to make a statement about somebody because you know it's going to destroy them, but you know that person's a bad person. When it comes to destroying somebody, when it comes to undermining somebody who you know to be bad, you must stick to the MS. You must make sure that everything that comes out of your, mo- your mouth is true. because You mustn't fall into the trap of thinking that because you have right on your side, that you can do something that's wrong in order to achieve your objective. Nagius, and that was the, was the case with Korach, he was completely Nagia Bedova. He was completely biased in this situation. He, of course, wasn't doing it because he felt that uh, Moshe Rabbeinu was a, an adulterer. He may have felt that Moshe Rabbeinu shouldn't be the leader for whatever reasons, and maybe he had an argument. But the way he went about it was completely immoral. He had sunk to the depths of depravity in order to achieve his objective. Even Korach, and Rashi quotes Chazal, Korach, who was such a bright individual, he was so wise and clever, and in every situation, Surely he was a person to ask advice from. But when it came to his own situation, he made such a poor decision. He wasn't embarrassed to lie. In other words, to create a lie and then do a lie against his own lie, as it were, in order to achieve the objective that he wanted to achieve. He was the one who wants to destroy Moshe Rabbeinu. He's the one who says that Moshe Rabbeinu is innocent of all the charges. Why? Tactically, he wanted to achieve his objective. When it comes to personal motives, and that's what is um, driving a person to do whatever it is that he is doing, 
or she is doing, there is absolutely no low to which such a person won't sink. One more Dvatur, a beautiful piece. Moshe Rabbeinu, he called Dosna of Aviram, he called these two people, they're from the Sheva to Ruvain, says Rashi, Vayishlach Moshe, why did he send for them? Why was he willing to engage with Dosan and Aviram? The fight really was with Korach. Why was he willing to engage with Dosan and Aviram? Says the Mikdash Alevi, from this we can learn that you must never maintain a dispute. You must never simply have an argument for the sake of it. Moshe Rabbeinu was even willing to send for Dosan and Aviram and to find some peaceful resolution to the problem at hand. I'm not going to read the Mikdash Shalev, you can, of course, and posting the uh, scan, the uh, PDF, both on my website. You can find it on SoundCloud, you'll also find it on YouTube. You can download it and read it for yourself. Mikdash Shalev is something beautiful. Dosan and Aviram were horrible people. Who were the people who um, reported Moshe Rabbeinu to the authorities in Egypt? None other than Dosan and the Aviram. Who were the people who at every given situation undermined Moshe? They were always the, the, they were the leaders of any faction that was opposed to Moshe Rabbeinu. Dosan the Aviram. Horrible people. And yet Moshe Rabbeinu was willing to reach a resolution with them if it meant so, uh, somehow sustaining the peace within the, within the Jewish people. That was something which he was willing to do. Says the Mikdash Alevi, you might think to yourself, when you're embarking on a dispute or involved or engaged in a dispute with people who are Rishoim, Dosans and Avirams, that you are permitted to do so. And if a chance to make peace with them comes up, don't make you can't make peace with Rishoim. They're wicked, they're evil. They're the worst kind of people says Moshe Rabbeinu, and this is the point of the Medrash. Do you know what it is? If you have an opportunity to reach some kind of modus vivendi, some kind of method that you can operate together with people who are a shoyim, like Dosan and Aviram, that's what you must do. How many times in history have we seen people who are purists we can't possibly live in the same camp or operate with people or have anything to do with people, engage with people, work with people who don't observe Torah mitzvahs like we do, whose Shabbos doesn't look like our Shabbos, whose Kashrus doesn't look like our Kashrus. We can't possibly have anything to do. They're muks and machmas meals. We mustn't have anything to do with them. Why? They're a shayim. It's a mitzvah for us to fight them. Says Moshe Rabbeinu, Vayishlach Moshe Likroi Ledoson Aviram. Don't ever think that someone is so far from the standards that you hold dear that you can't try and make peace with them and work with them and find a resolution to the dispute with them that you may be involved and engaged in. Mikan she'in machzikin b'machloikus. Don't be someone who looks for reasons not to work with other people because they're a shoyim or whatever. 
look for ways to make peace. Be someone, Moshe was a mechazer achreim, lahashlimom bedivrei shalom, even with Dosan and Aviram. And on that note, I'm going to leave it. Thank you so much. Thank you.